This is the Sleeper Hold Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sleeper Hole Podcast, where there is no disqualification on the topics and falls count anywhere. I am your host, Priest, and we are going to be continuing on with the Women in Wrestling series in just a moment. But first, I want to talk about what has transpired in the WWE as of recently. First of all, tables, ladders, and chairs. We've got to talk about that. It was a great pay-per-view. It actually exceeded my expectations overall. I was very pleased with it, especially with the tag team ladder match. I said before in my predictions that I was really hoping they would eventually bring it back to kind of what gave TLC its pay-per-view, gave it its rightful place, and they did. They made it feel like you were watching the Hardys and Edge and Christian and the Dudleys just duke it out. Roman Reigns' match was really good. Of course, he got screwed out of it, but then the following Monday, he got his title after his complete snapping and just destroying Triple H, which, honestly, originally I was bummed out with the way the show ended until that part happened. When you saw Roman Reigns finally have enough and was pushed too far, and he exploded on Triple H and Sheamus with the chair and everything else, it really made Roman Reigns go over with everybody. But it was also exactly the catalyst he needed. We also got to see the lunatic now own the IC title, which was something I was really hoping for. I like Dean Ambrose, and I think that him actually having a title again, especially now that he's on his own and not part of the Shield, is a really good thing for him. So really big congratulations to Dean Ambrose and Roman Reigns. They're making waves, and they're setting the pace for themselves for future generations and future highlights in history. It's great. We also, yesterday, got to see the Slammy Awards, and that was pretty interesting. It always is. Um, I'm glad to see a few of the things that I rooted for actually won. You know, R-Truth's moments of, you know, coming out and declaring himself as a contender and then realizing he's not in a tournament or whatever and saying, you know, that was on him and everything else. Those were always highlights for me. I thought those were great. So the fact that he won that was awesome. I'm kind of hoping they keep running with that, with um, the Royal Rumble coming up and have him be like, man, if I was in the Royal Rumble, I would throw this person over and that person, you know, talking all the smack, and then have somebody like Triple H or Stephanie be like, our truth, you are in the Royal Rumble. Oh, I am? Yeah, you drew number one. You're the first person in. Oh, well, dang. You know, just something funny like that, because it's it's really building that character for our truth Also, I like seeing this hopefully growing feud between Prince Pretty and Goldust. Hoping to see where that one goes. But, I mean, those are just my thoughts about what's been going on recently with the WWE. But we're here to talk about the women in wrestling, and that's what this episode is going to be all about. So without further ado, today's episode is going to definitely be a 
triple threat, three different people who are considered divas of the WWE. And this is one episode that I am pretty sure even the king would approve of. So let's kick this off right and talk about, first off, a woman who's been a fitness competitor. She's gone for Miss Galaxy. She's with WCW. She's been with the WWE. And she has even been on Playboy. This is none other than Tori Wilson. Starting out as a sweet little shy girl born in Boise, Idaho, Tori Wilson really came out of her little shyness when she started doing things like cheerleading, dance, and track and field during her young age. During her sophomore year of high school, though, she began to be a little interested in modeling, and it became pretty serious. Even her mother urged her to pursue it. She did visit an agent who basically told her she had to lose some weight to be considered for the jobs, and this kind of did a downward spiral, as it does for many people who go into modeling, to where she ended up with anorexia, nervousness, and then bulimia, and it kind of lasted her from ages 14 to 20. She did recover from it, and honestly, in my opinion, that's something to be very proud of. I know those things can be very hard and dangerous for a lot of people, especially young teenage girls. So after recovering from those disorders, Tori became interested in fitness, and she actually went into a competition and placed third on the first competition she went towards, followed by going into the Miss Galaxy competition in 1998. So, I mean, really a big turnaround there. In 1998, she had the Women's Tri-Fitness Championships and won first place in the Grace and Physique round. And after that is when she moved to Los Angeles to pursue acting career, and that kind of, you know, led towards her getting a few jobs, including where she's been known for now, which is the wrestling world. It was in 1999, though, that she went to a WCW show, and it kind of started her interest in the wrestling world. She ended up going backstage and was asked to walk Scott Steiner out to the ring as, like, a valet. And Kevin noticed, of Kevin Nash, I should specify, he noticed her and expressed interest in doing a storyline with her. So she ended up debuting as Samantha who was brought in by the NWO to seduce David Flair and to betray his father, the nature boy, Ric Flair. So Tori, or Samantha, as she was called at the time, became pretty much the valet for David. And, I mean, they took a bit of a hiatus after Ric Flair won a championship from Hogan in a barbed wire steel cage match. Yeah, think about that real quick. And then it turned around and came to where they came back and she was the valet for David Flair and all that lovely chaos that they had there with that drama. Now, when I'm talking about the whole drama thing and everything else, I guess I should specify that during October of 1999, Tori ended up turning on Flair because she was found in the locker room of the Filthy Animals flirting with Billy Kidman and that caused a feud between Flair and Kidman And after the filthy animals and Kidman had pretty much pummeled the heck out of David Flair, Tori left to be with the filthy animals and begin her management with Billy Kidman and his filthy animal teammates. Now, look, there were other dramas of her back and forth flirting with other people and changing who she manages and all this other sort of drama. 
it's kind of to be expected to an extent back then during that time frame. That was kind of the big thing they did with certain female managers or valets, as some people like to call them. So I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but I will say that that kind of carried on as a common thing where she did that and ended up getting Kidman jealous at many people. And that lasted until about December of 2000, which is around the time her contract ended with the WCW. So in 2001, when the WWE had its invasion storyline, you know, the ECW and the WCW coming in to invade the WWE or WWF back then, as it was called, we actually had Tori Wilson be part of the invasion team. And she, in her first storyline, portrayed Vince McMahon's latest affair. So she was kind of there, and she also teamed with fellow WCW performer Stacey Keebler. And they actually made their wrestling debuts in, like, Braun Panties matches against Lita and Trish Stratus at the Invasion pay-per-view. So a lot of big things happening right there, because, I mean, the Invasion thing... To me, it was a great storyline, and it had so much potential. I feel that Vince kind of overlooked what he could have really done with the company back then with that whole angle, and even built it even further than he had before. Wilson even defeated Trish Stratus in a paddle on a pole match the following Monday after the invasion thing. And so, I mean, it was kind of neat because even with her lack of in-ring experience... Tori Wilson had a regular feud with the other divas and actually held her own pretty well. What really won Tori Wilson over with the fans, though, was probably her on-screen romance with Tajiri. This romance caused Keebler to turn against Tori Wilson, and as a result, Tori Wilson defected to the WWE company, and she defeated Keebler in a lingerie match at No Mercy, Finishing her opponent with a low blow while dressed in the lingerie. Uh, the first brand separation of the company took place in 2002, and Tori Wilson was drafted over to SmackDown. So, I mean, that was a big turning point for her as well. Mainly because all the attention she was getting from the other guys when she was over there. And Tajiri, he wasn't too fond of this. I mean, he actually got so jealous that he forced Tajiri's girlfriend, Tori Wilson, to pretty much wear a, a geisha outfit and whenever she was out to the ring. So he kind of made sure that she was able to show off and get the guy's attention. And he pretty much just treated her badly during the whole time. It was during a match where Tajiri was actually going against the hurricane that Tori finally grew tired of the mistreating and the geisha outfit and everything else. So during the match, she actually got on top of the announcer's table and stripped off her clothing. This distraction actually really helped out because the hurricane was able to pick up the wind while Tajiri was freaking out. And at the Rebellion 2002 pay-per-view, Tori teamed up with Billy Kidman and defeated John Cena and Don Marie in an intergender tag team match. And afterwards, Kidman and Tori Wilson embraced once more. All right. Now, we can't really talk about Tori Wilson without talking about the one year that I think was probably the most messed up year of her career. We're talking about 2002. See, during this time, Tori developed a feud against Don Marie while... 
Don started a relationship with Tori's real-life father, Al Wilson. And it seemed like during that whole thing, Tori was teaming up with Rikishi in a losing effort to Don Marie and Matt Hardy. And when Wilson defeated Don at No Mercy, she soon found that Don was engaged to Al, who told Tori that she would break it off if she spent the night in a hotel room with her. So basically, in order to stop the engagement between Don Marie and Al, Tori had to give her body to Don Marie. Talk about major twist and really weird time for the WWE and Tori's career. Anyway, so it later on was revealed that Don was actually just lying and taking advantage of Tori Wilson, and she tried to show the footage at Armageddon, and it continued on to 2003, where Don and Al got married, and they actually got married in, in their underwear. It's ugh. not not Don Al just. Ugh. Then uh, Al supposedly a week later died from a heart attack after such rigorous romping with Don Marie. And then, you know, Tori defeated Don at the Royal Rumble. And it was billed basically as a stepmother versus stepdaughter match. It lasted for a while. It was probably the dumbest storyline ever for any diva to ever deal with. Now, 2003 wasn't a bad year for Tori. She started off appearing in the cover of Playboy magazine, and her storyline with Nydia developed, with Nydia being jealous of the fact that Wilson was chosen to be on the cover of Playboy. So that kind of started a feud between those two, and of course, Jamie Noble was in the middle of all that. And WrestleMania 19, there was a segment where Tori had her Playboy coming out party and former diva uh, and also Playgirl cover girl, or Playboy cover girl rather, Sable, made a return after a four-year absence. And this kind of began something between those two for weeks where Sable was playing mind games with Tori, being friendly one moment, then, you know, kind of the bee at the next moment. This kind of led to a basically a bikini match between Tori and Sable on Judgment Day, and Tori won. After the match, she planted a big kiss to Sable right on the lips, basically saying no hard feelings, or more likely just trying to get hype out of the guys. So during this whole thing that we have going on here, we have that also Molly Holly arrives and basically just interrupts Tori's photo shoot and challenges her, in which Tori then turns around and gets her first WWE Women's Championship title match, but unfortunately does not successfully win the title. In 2004, Tori teamed up with Sable and they went on a feud against the Raw Divas, Stacey Keebler and Miss Jackie. And this centered on the latter duo's jealousy of Wilson and Sable being on the Playboy cover, as well as their recently being named Cover Girls yet again. The two divas were announced to be featured together in the upcoming Playboy issue of March 2004. This feud eventually ended in a Playboy evening gown match at WrestleMania 20, 
where Keebler and Miss Jackie were stripped down out of their evening gowns by Sable and Tori. Also in 2004, Tori had a second feud with Don Marie, where during part of the feud, the general manager of SmackDown at the time, Kurt Angle, made a stipulation that if Tori was to lose, her career would be put on the line and she would be fired. Now, at Judgment Day, where this match took place, Tori did defeat Don Marie to keep her career. And later on that year, Tori Wilson engaged in a short feud with Sable, who also did end up defeating her at the Great American Bash. So, you win some, you lose some, but hey, Tori's career was still pretty sturdy. Uh, in November 2004, there was the feud with Hiroko, and she teamed up, Tori that is, with Rey Mysterio and Rob Van Dam. And went up against Hiroko, Kenzo Suzuki, and Rene Dupree. And it looks like, I believe, I believe the episode was February 10th episode where Tori actually defeated Hiroko in a kimono match by removing the kimono first. On August 22nd, 2005, Tori Wilson and Candice Michelle had been moved to the Raw brand. During that night, Tori Wilson and Candice became villains by attacking 2005 Diva Search winner Ashley Massaro. Her and Candice's storyline feud with Massaro continued over the next couple weeks, and along with their enforcer Victoria, who was eventually dubbed as, well, a name I can't say by Jim Ross, uh, got keep a PG, things were made very difficult for Masaro. On September 5th episode, Wilson defeated Masaro after interfering, or a interference from Victoria and Candace, actually, and... Masaru, even the score on September 12th, actually, when she brought out the returning Trish Stratus, and the two kind of attacked Tori and the rest of those girls. That feud did come to a close, though, at the WWE Homecoming, where Stratus and Masaru were able to defeat Wilson, Candice, and Victoria in the first ever three-on-two bra and panties match by being able to successfully strip all three of their opponents. So, not a good lucky time there for Tori Wilson during the WWE Homecoming. Now, after that, though, Tori was absent from the WWE's uh, in-ring television shows for quite some time, and there were some reports and rumors that were saying that she was released from the WWE. Actually, they were all false. She just decided to take some time off to tend to some personal issues, as she would call it, and when the media finally got to Tori Wilson, there were some people who offered to help her find work. She was actually kind of shocked by it and made a statement on her website and the WWE's website saying that, you know, these rumors were not true. And she even joked saying that she had to call the WWE office and ask them if they forgot to fire her. Now... Tori did come back around October 17th, and she had her little things where she was with Candice and Victoria as they faced off against Trish Stratus, Massaro, and now Mickey James, and it kind of went back and forth and everything like that, and even there's times where Tori went up against Candice. That whole 
issue was interesting to say the least, but it wasn't anything that was spectacular highlights in my opinion. However, 2006 is when we saw a new appearance with Tori Wilson when she joined the ECW brand of WWE that they relaunched. And she was in a bikini contest against the diva Kelly Kelly. And even though the winner was not decided, there was a six-person mixed tag match that began, which put Tori Wilson, Tommy Dreener, and the Sandman against Kelly Kelly, Mike Knox, and Test. Wilson's, Tori Wilson's team, you know, they were victorious. So that was a big stepping stone right there with this new ECW brand. And near the end of 2006, Tori Wilson kind of entered an on-screen relationship with Carlito, and they seemed like a pretty strong team. The two were, I guess you could say, a cute couple. I don't know, I'm never a big Carlito fan, but he was there to help her out a lot, and it turned out that it caught Ric Flair's interest, and the three of them became almost like their own little mini-stable. Now, what's really interesting is, down the road, Ric Flair... It was helping out with them, and Carlito turned heel, turning not only against Flair, but dumping Tori along the way and making their little love nest thing there going on just kind of fall to the wayside. Trust me, it was all for the better, Tori. Also, around that time when that all happened, June 11th came, and Tori was drafted back over to SmackDown. So, she's back where she was originally drafted to to begin with. Now, SmackDown, she again had many diva challenges and battles, especially with Kelly Kelly and Beth Phoenix and Victoria. And it was all really pretty neat and awesome, but she ended up having to take time off from having a previous back injury flare back up and needing physical therapy. And that pretty much became the last we saw or heard of Tori until WrestleMania 25 when she came by with other former divas to compete in the Miss WrestleMania Battle Royal, which she got eliminated in that by Beth Phoenix. You know, in all of this, though, the one thing I've noticed that people have always said about Tori is ever the bridesmaid, never the bride. Because, you know, there's not really a lot of milestone markers about her getting a title or anything like that, like you'd see from Trish or other divas out there. But the main thing you got to remember when it comes to Tori is she gave the fans an excellent show day in and day out. She had great passion for this business. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if one of these days sometime in the near future, she is possibly put into consideration to be in the Hall of Fame. Tori was an incredible athlete, incredible spirit. And I honestly, I hate to see that she's not in the ring, but at the same time, it's been so many years, I can understand why. I just think that, you know, people don't give her as much credit as credit is due. At the Sleeper Hold Podcast, we strongly believe in helping others. This quarter, the Sleeper Hold Podcast is going pink with Susan G. Komen as we join the Rise Above Cancer campaign. Susan G. Komen is the world's largest nonprofit funder of breast cancer research. Breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the world and the second leading cause of cancer related deaths among women in the United States. There are already more than 3.1 million breast cancer survivors now in the United States 
and your contributions will help with the research and work to increase the number of survivors of breast cancer. For more information or to make your donation, visit thesleeperhold.com and click on the Susan G. Komen link. You know, we talked about how Tori didn't get as much credit as credit is due, and I always liked Tori's theme entrance music. Now, I feel compelled that we have to talk about this next person. Now, before we go too far, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, Priest, she's not technically a diva. She's never fought in the ring. Well, according to the WWE, she is a diva, and in my eyes, she's definitely one, too. This woman has a beautiful singing voice. I'm probably going to mention that a couple times, but let me just say she's been around for a long time with the WWE. You'll recognize her by her voice. You may not even think much about her because she's not one that really highlights all the time like she should be. But we're talking about the in-ring announcer, the woman who sings the national anthem for the WWE, none other than Lillian Garcia. Now, first off, have you ever heard this woman sing? Seriously. I'm not talking just about when she does the national anthem or anything like that for the WWE. And she did do the voice for the entrance of Tori Wilson, who we just talked about. But this woman actually has a singing career. She has a voice. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, if you haven't listened to Lillian Garcia actually sing, you're doing yourself an injustice. Go check her out. Lillian, if you hear about this or if you get to hear this podcast, mad props to you, girl. You are awesome. Now, little known fact for some people is that Lillian actually was born in Madrid, Spain. And so she's actually was a military brat because her father um, was employed with the American embassy. So she was pretty much educated and brought up around the military base, the American military base. So she jokes about that a lot. And she's very fluent in both English and Spanish. And this girl has been singing since she was five years old. I'm talking not just, you know, walk around singing all silly. No, she was in singing contest, guys. She was letting those pipes sing out for everyone. When she was a teenager, her mom chaperoned her to local clubs around South Carolina so she could sing at the clubs and more recognition to her. I mean, this is an early age and she's doing these big things like this. Here's another fun fact for you guys. You know the song, America the Beautiful? Well, every WrestleMania, that song is sung by some musician, some vocalist. We're talking about big names like Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, Reba McIntyre, Gladys Knight, Willie Nelson, and don't forget, Lillian Garcia. That's right. Lillian Garcia has sang at WrestleMania, America the Beautiful, and she's one of two people, the other one being Aretha Franklin that has sang America the Beautiful at WrestleMania more than once. Her first single was called Shout. And on 2002, October, it actually hit number 69 in the Billboard Hot 100. Now, what's really awesome about this is Lillian Garcia made a little comment about this, and I think it's great. So I'm going to quote it right here. When my single came out years ago, and it was just a single, I remember the very first week it charted number 69, 
And I was screaming as I grabbed a billboard, running down the streets of New York, holding up and screaming, I made billboard, I made billboard. I'm dreaming for that moment again, end quote. But I could talk forever about her singing career. I mean, the girl is a beautiful, beautiful singer. But we're here to talk about wrestling. So let's talk about her in-ring wrestling career with the WWF or WWE, whichever way you want to look at it. Lillian's wrestling career started out in 1999 when she was a ring announcer. And her first actual angle that she was involved in, per se, was during an episode of Raw when she announced that Jeff Jarrett had lost to Luna Vashun via disqualification. Angered, Jeff Jarrett applied the figure four leg lock to our dear sweet Lillian Garcia. Another great angle she did was back in 1999, near the end of the year, she introduced Miss Kitty to the ring, or the area, I guess you could call it, because it was a women's championship chocolate pudding pool match. And Miss Kitty corrected her, saying that from now on, she used to be referred to as the cat. Well, the cat won that match. And at the end, Lillian announced that the winner was Miss Kitty, which irritated the cat who threw Lillian into the pool of pudding. Here's another great one. This is actually one where Lillian Garcia did get into a match. I actually didn't know about this one, so I had to check this one out. In 2002, Lillian Garcia briefly feuded with rival announcer Howard Finkel. Now, Finkel had left her to be decimated by three-minute warning, and because of this, this led to an evening gown versus tuxedo match in which Lillian Garcia won with the assistance of Stacey Keebler and Trish Stratus. Out of good humor, I'm going to have to check this one out. In 2005, Lillian actually had an on-screen romance with the wrestler Viscera, and it actually led to where Lillian proposed to Viscera stated that she wanted to marry him during the Vengeance pay-per-view, and it ended with Viscera at Vengeance rejecting Lillian Garcia in favor of Godfather's escorts. And it looks like, honestly, from what I'm understanding, the real time Lillian became considered a diva publicly was during the 2005 Swimsuit Magazine and the DVD of Viva Las Divas of the WWE. So, I really nobody considered her that way until around that time, it seems. But again, she rightfully deserves that title. In 2006, Lillian had actually suffered a sprained wrist when Charlie Haas had inadvertently knocked her to the ground while she was at the ring apron. And so, this actually ended up making her down out for a bit while Viscera came to inflict the wrath upon Charlie Haas. Um, it, it actually ended, though, with Viscera accidentally doing a Samoan drop on Lillian, and this all happened while he was trying to face off and confront Haas, so we actually had Lillian gone for a little while there because of that Samoan drop. I mean, big 400-plus pound guy really must have done some damage. So here's another good fun fact. Um, August 2007, Lillian announced uh, her new album, which was called Quiero Vivi, if I, uh, Vivir, sorry, I'm not really good at my Spanish, and she had a feud start with Jillian Hall, who th- could have sworn she was going to be a better singer than Lillian. And the following week, 
they actually had on Raw a WWE Idol, which was pretty much a parody of American Idol, which was really, really awesome. And Lillian sang New York, New York, which was a song by Frank Sinatra. Really good song, if you ask me. And she was actually interrupted by Santino during that moment. On September 1st, oh, my mistake, September 21st, 2009, there was an episode of Raw that was at Little Rock, Arkansas, and this was actually a big part because Jerry Lawler announced to the audience that this was going to be Lillian's final night with the WWE. And she made an emotional speech in the ring and thanked all of the fans and all of her colleagues. And the final match that she officially announced was the match between Randy Orton, Chris Jericho, and Big Show against the team of John Cena, MVP, and Mark Henry. And that was officially her last uh, announced match. Now, granted, there was a match that was between Primo and Chris Masters that was taped and then played later on that makes her final television appearance. But if you want to go actually by chronological, the one that she did with those three-on-three matches, her actual official last announced one during that time. But wait, Priest... Don't we see Lillian Garcia even today when we watch Raw and SmackDown in the pay-per-views? Well, chill out, children. I'm getting to that. On December 6, 2011, our dear sweet Lillian Garcia returned for the tapings of the SmackDown show and also announced for main events and pay-per-views. And she actually did suffer a few accidents prior to the tapings of 2012. And so while heading to the ring prior to the March 13th taping in Columbus, the strap on her left shoe broke. Megan could have quite a nice, nasty spill. I mean, she played it off well and recovered when she could, but still, I mean, did a good little injury. As luck would have it, April 17th, during a show in London, England, she ended up tripping over pyrotechnic equipment on the top of the stage and she actually fell down the ramp so again not much luck on there she did land on her knees and still as you can see now she's okay but still kind of stinks april 19th of 2013 though garcia was given instructions for dance steps by fandango and was insulted by the dancing master as he likes to think of himself So we also had, in June of 2014, Alicia Fox confronted Lillian after she had lost a match to Natalia. Uh, Alicia losing the match to Natalia, not Lillian. I'm sure Natty and Lillian don't have anything to go against each other about. Hopefully not. Knock on wood. Um, And I also know that she eventually took over for the other announcer, which was Justin Roberts. But this was after she had to go and get knee surgery, which took her off of television for a while. Her official full-time return was on May 31st with the Elimination Chamber. Now, since then, we've seen Lillian Garcia, Raw, SmackDown, you name it, the pay-per-views, the whole shebang. The only things that she really hasn't done, I believe, are NXT. I believe that's left to like JoJo and whatnot. But Lillian has been around for the WWE for a long time. I mean, she was given the diva of the decade at one time because she was one of the, and I believe she still is actually, the only diva who's been around for over 10 years uh, without any breaking 
being with a company. That was before she had retired. Lillian is a great spirit. She reminds me of like how you see some of the other interviewing people and announcers and whatnot. They've got so much life. They've got so much energy. And you don't think about them. They're just there for those few seconds to announce the match and then they disappear. But when you give them the time to shine, like they have with Lillian, they let her sing. They let her beautiful voice out. Or they let her make a few little gimmicky things like her thing with Viscera. You really get to see the character. And Lillian has had the chance to do that. And that's what makes her, in my most humble opinion, one of the most phenomenal divas out there. She may not have done all these wild, crazy matches like the Bellas or whoever you want to name off. I don't care. But Lillian, in her own right, has been phenomenal. Lillian Garcia, you are definitely a WWE diva. So let's talk about the third and final diva of this triple threat, and let's have some fun with this, because that's what this is all about. The best way I can describe her is to steal a line from CM Punk and say, I dig crazy chicks. That's right. I'm talking about his actual wife, AJ Lee. Now, just a little quick background about A.J. Lee. She actually attended the New York University's School of Arts in New York City, where she majored in film and television production as well as writing. So, I mean, she had some good background knowledge before she got into the wrestling career. Now, shortly after she had left the university, she enrolled in a wrestling school about one mile away from her home. And the trainer on that place was Jay Lethal. On September 29th, 2007, she actually debuted as Miss April while wrestling on the New Jersey Independent Circuit. But it wasn't until about 2009 when she took part in a tryout camp to be assigned to the Florida Championship Wrestling, which is the WWE's developmental territory at the time. She paid out $1,500 just to attend this tryout. And from there, she went in the ring name of April League, but it was shortly changed up and shortened down to just AJ Lee, which stuck permanently. So, August 31st, 2010, AJ was announced as one of the six participants in the all-female third season of NXT. Now, remember real quick, though, NXT back then isn't what we have now. It used to be more kind of like a tough-enough-ish type thing, where... They were mentored and guided by superstars who were already there. And Primo happened to be AJ's pro. While adapting to her real-life comic book and video game fandom, she actually quickly became a fan favorite on the show. And throughout the season, there was a bit of a tease about her and Primo actually having a relationship forming. And at the finale, the two of them actually ultimately kissed she also had a on-screen relationship with a fellow competitor, Caitlin. And after going to the final three, AJ was eliminated from the competition. And that was on uh, November 23rd. However, that's not the last we would see of AJ, as many of you know. On May 27, 2011, 
During an episode of SmackDown, AJ made her main roster debut alongside her friend Caitlin as a tag team, referring to themselves as the Chick Busters. They were led by their mentor, Natalia, and they faced a team of Alicia Fox and Tamina, and they kind of lost him in consecutive weeks. The first victory came on June 10th, when AJ was able to pin Tamina during a singles match. And the trio continued to feud with Fox, Tamina, and now Rosa Mendez throughout the next two months. Now, I love AJ. I think AJ is a great talent person. But when she started out early in her career, she had so many different relationship things going on. Her emotional relationship world was a giant roller coaster. I'm not going to kid to you about that. In November of 2011, she had a romantic storyline going with Daniel Bryan, who had won the World Heavyweight Championship. Surprise, surprise, guys. You may have forgotten about that. And he won it the following month after they started the little romance and started to display some villainous traits. Uh, AJ declared a love for Bryan, and Bryan avoided saying that he loved her in return. Ouch. AJ even accompanied Brian to his title defense against Big Show during January 13, 2012, and ended up being injured after colliding with Big Show and had to be taken out by Stretcher. So that really kind of stung for AJ, and on February 3rd, she actually came back to save Daniel Bryan from the Big Show. See, this whole time, though, Daniel Bryan really didn't return the affection. He actually demanded for AJ to shut up and that she gets in his way. And on WrestleMania 28, Daniel Bryan was up against Sheamus, and AJ tried to give him a good luck kiss. And it distracted him long enough for Sheamus to just go ahead and roll him up real quick for the pin and end the match and everything. And so... Daniel Bryan, infuriated, blamed AJ for his loss and ended the relationship. And no matter what AJ tried to do to mend the relationship, Daniel Bryan would have none of it. He left her distraught, and as a result, she started to actually lash out and get really aggressive, especially towards those who tried to comfort her, like Natalia and Caitlin. And this is what kind of started the whole crazy chick, or the mentally unstable version of AJ that she became so well-known for. But wait, there's more. See, AJ then turned her attention towards Daniel Bryan's rival, CM Punk, as well as Daniel Bryan's fellow WWE title contender, Kane. And at No Way Out, on June 17th, AJ interfered in a triple threat match for the WWE Championship between Punk, Bryan, and Kane by helping Punk retain his championship while distracting Kane. As the feud between Bryan and Punk continued, it was announced that AJ was going to be the special guest referee for their match at the Money in the Bank pay-per-view. Talk about some really bad situation going on there for Daniel Bryan. Desperate to not get screwed over, Daniel Bryan tried to make advances to AJ and attempt to influence her, but AJ kept her attention on CM Punk. On July 9th, AJ proposed to CM Punk... And Daniel Bryan responded by proposing to AJ in return. Now, here's a real kicker, though. CM Punk rejected her proposal, and furious AJ slapped both men. At the Money in the Bank pay-per-view on July 15th, AJ was the referee, and she counted Punk's pinfall on Bryan, resulting in Punk still having the title defense. And Punk celebrated his victory over the fallen Bryan, 
and AJ was left all alone. The following night, though, on Raw, Brian once again tried to propose to AJ, and guess what? She accepted. Now, here's another fun kicker for you. The story still gets more interesting. See, at Raw 1000, the 1000th episode of Raw, AJ was offered a job as Raw General Manager by Vincent McMahon, and so she had to figure out what she wanted to do with that, as well as get ready to exchange vows with Daniel Bryan at the altar. She ended up taking the offer to be general manager, and she left Bryan at the altar. Her on-screen authority role began July 30th, and she actually said that she only thinks Bryan wanted her for the legal leverage, and she had him undergo a lot of own psychological evaluations. Talk about really turning the tables on your, well, I guess ex-fiancé is a good way to put it. There was a number one contender match for CM Punk's title between John Cena and Big Show that CM Punk interfered in, and AJ decided to modify that championship bout at SummerSlam to be a triple threat match between those three. At the same time, she continued to get revenge on Daniel Bryan by denying him a chance for the title and put him against Kane at SummerSlam. This is why you don't get on the bad side of a woman, guys. Just saying. And it gets even more interesting for our dear AJ here. See, Vicky Guerrero, Eddie Guerrero's wife, who now I guess you say Eddie Guerrero's widow, she demanded for AJ's general manager role, saying that AJ was too childish. And after having CM Punk humiliate AJ for her past affections, she then had another person demanding for her general manager position which was none other than Paul Heyman. Now, see, AJ did step down from the general manager position and basically handed it over to Vicky. And this was after, though, Vicky had accused Cena and AJ to be having like a little affair and little special relationship. And even though the two denied it for several weeks, the two actually did end up starting a relationship despite the fact that Cena kept showing reluctance towards AJ. Meanwhile, Cena had fueled a rivalry between Dolph Ziggler over Ziggler's Money in the Bank contract, and during the TLC match on December 16, AJ turned on Cena and interfered by pushing him off the ladder, causing him to lose. This solidified AJ's relationship with Dolph Ziggler, the following night, where they teamed together against Cena and Vicky Guerrero in the main event, which ended up in disqualification after the debut of Big E, who interfered and attacked Cena on AJ's behalf. AJ's excuse, well, that is that Cena only cares about himself and that, you know, he broke her heart, so she was going to help Dolph Ziggler break him. AJ still continued her back-and-forth banter and harassment between herself and Daniel Bryan, and it actually led to where there's eventually a big old feud between Dolph, Biggie, AJ versus Daniel Bryan and Kane, and AJ actually challenged Team Hell No, which is Daniel Bryan and Kane, 
to defend their WWE Tag Team Championship at WrestleMania 29 against Ziggler and Big E. And Team Hell No accepted, and they actually retained their title. The following night, though, in AJ and Big E had accompanied Dolph Ziggler to cash in his Money in the Bank contract against Alberto. And, well, Dolph became the World Heavyweight Champion. So there's still something good that came out of it overall. Now, in April 2013, there was a battle royal to become the number one contender for Caitlyn's WWE Divas Championship, and AJ won that. She then had a little secret plan. See, Caitlyn began to have this whole thing where she received gifts from a secret admirer. And after a while, she realized that she was being set up because Big E was posing as an admirer, and it was all a mind game, a ploy by AJ to betray Caitlyn and leave her in tears. See, after that, though, six days later at Payback, AJ defeated Caitlyn to become the Divas Champion for the first time. And she continued to mock Caitlyn and later on participated in the first ever in-ring Divas Championship contract signing for a rematch at Money in the Bank, where AJ won the match and retained her title. Later on that night, she actually ended up costing Dolph Ziggler his rematch for his World Heavyweight Championship against Del Rio as she snuck into the ring and hit Del Rio with the Divas title, which prompted a disqualification. With her actions, Ziggler basically ended their relationship the following night on Raw, and AJ, which is some of you shouldn't cross, extracted her revenge by costing Ziggler a whole match with an, even though it was non-title, but she, he lost a match against Del Rio thanks to her, and then she turned around and she unleashed Big E on him. And so, next thing you know, Big E was banned from attending AJ's matches. However, AJ successfully defended her title against Caitlyn after Caitlyn's friend, Layla, turned on her. Ziggler and Caitlyn then joined together to ultimately defeat AJ and Langston, or Big E as he is now called, Langston, that's his last name, in what was a mixed tag team match at SummerSlam. So, what was going to be the Divas Champions' focus now? How about the cast of Total Divas? The AJ started to criticize them, and she interfered in different matches between the Total Divas, like Natalia, Naomi, and Brie Bella, and actually ended up having to defend her title because of all her actions against those three said Divas in a fatal four match at Night of Champions, but she did retain her championship. Come late September, AJ enlisted Tamina Snuka as her bodyguard, and she continued to defend her championship against Brie Bella at Battleground with the help of Tamina. And she was sent home the following night's Raw after she showed signs of concussion, from which happened when her head was struck by a ring post during her last title defense. She did return for Hell in the Cell, where she again defeated Brie Bella. And at Survivor Series, she captained a team in a traditional seven-on-seven elimination tag team match against the cast of Total Divas, in which she was the last to be eliminated, courtesy of Natalia. This led to a title match between the two at the following month's TLC event, 
and AJ still retained her championship. On January 2014, AJ was announced as the longest reigning Divas champion, which was previously set by Maurice. And let's see here. She fended off her title against Cameron, Natalia. She had an on-screen rivalry with the general manager, Vicky Guerrero, who, let me tell you, Vicky, <laughs> she forced AJ to defend her championship in a 14-woman match at WrestleMania 30. Youch. She retained her title, though, and she also became the first one to mark in history as the first time the Divas Championship had been contested for at the WWE's main event, the big-time event, WrestleMania. But here's where things get twisted. See, the following night after WrestleMania, the NXT champion, women's champion, Paige, came out to congratulate AJ and you know, just say good job and, you know, how much she really admired her and everything else. And Paige basically was trying to be innocent on it, but AJ's like, no, no. You're here to try to sneak in and get my belt. So I'll tell you what, if you think you're all that little girl, let's have an impromptu match right now and I'll put my title on the line. That was AJ's biggest mistake as Paige ended up winning the match and being the only person to be both the WWE Divas and the NXT Women's Champion at the same time. This would end AJ's title reign of total of 295 days. Paige and AJ would go back and forth throughout the time to basically see who deserves to be the champion. Paige had it for a while, then AJ came back and demanded an impromptu match against Paige, and the fans were all for so Paige gave in, and AJ won the title. Then it was back and forth with them being frenemies, friend-slash-enemies, and it was an incredible time frame. I mean, honestly, the storyline, it was one that some people felt was overdone or just rinse, lather, repeat, but for me personally, I liked it because you got to see this real interesting side of the divas where they're, they're friends but they aren't friends they they like each other they can work together but when push comes to shove when it comes to that title all bets are off and it's really what kind of helped develop a lot i think to what we have now the last time though we would see aj was at wrestlemania 31 where see before that on march 2nd she had saved her former rival Paige, who was being attacked by the bella twins so AJ and Paige teamed up at WrestleMania 31 to go against the Bella Twins, and they successfully won. It was five days later, though, on April 3rd, that the WWE announced that AJ had decided to retire from in-ring competition. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about this, whether it was her own choice or if it was because she was just burned out she was tired of the way that they were making jabs and all the whole drama between her husband sam punk and the wwe the the different i don't want to say conspiracy theories but the different theories and thought processes and whatnot they're out there and they are huge but ultimately the only people who really would know is going to be aj lee and possibly her husband, Sam Punk. Is it true? Who knows? 
what made her decide to do it? Who knows? For all we know, she may have decided she just wants to try to get back into doing other stuff with like what she was going to college for to begin with. Maybe she wanted to eventually see about writing a TV show of her own or something. She's a very smart gal. So, who knows? But all I know is this. Unfortunately, her longest streak was forcibly removed by the WWE and given it to Nikki Bella, which to me was a really dumb move. It was an insult because it just, it actually almost destroyed the Divas division, in my opinion, with how drawn out that was. At the same time, she really did a lot for the company, and they think that they overlook that, and she deserves that recognition. But AJ will always be one of my favorite divas of this generation, and probably of all time, just like Natty will be. So AJ, like I said before, and I'll say it again, and I say it with the fondest of heart, I dig crazy chicks. You rock, girl. All right, boys and girls, that actually wraps up this episode. I know that we were starting for a while there to go weekly, but with given certain health concerns and other circumstances, we actually are going to fall back to being bi-weekly. So we'll see you every two weeks, and we're actually going to move our show to Wednesdays. That's right, starting 2016. We're going to move it to Wednesdays for you guys. That way it's going to be right there in the hump day. Something for you to help get over that hump and to enjoy everything. Just remember, relax, sit back, watch some good old wrestling. Don't forget to watch the stuff that's on not only TV, but that's local. Support your local people. And remember, we still are going to have other great episodes and specials, just like we had that prediction panel. So that's it for this year, 2015. What a ride. 2016, here we come. It is going to be a blast. This concludes the Women in Wrestling series. And for all of you guys, have a happy holidays. Thank you for listening and being a fan and supporter of the Sleeper Hold podcast. I can't wait to see you guys again come 2016. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Sleeper Hold Podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at thesleeperhold.com, comment on episodes, read our blog, find information about our quarterly charity, and more. See you next week.